Welcome back to The Legal Report. I'm Lauren, and I'm joined by... Heidi. And Savannah. And we are going to talk about a brief overview of the civil procedure in Australia versus the United States. All right. Thanks, Lauren. So it's important to remember, firstly, that in the U.S. and Australia, you cannot go to jail for the loss of a civil case. Criminal charges can be filed at conclusion of a civil case if there's clear evidence that a crime's been committed, but in a civil case, you cannot go to jail. Jail cannot be prescribed or punishment cannot include jail. It often is a monetary value that is given from the defendant to the plaintiff. So, starting off, there are two broad types of civil claims that can be brought in district court in Australia. The first being claims for damages in respect to death or personal injury, and the second being personal actions where the amount of value or damages sought to be recovered is not more than $750,000. This is different in the U.S. In the U.S., anything not criminal is civil, period. Anything can be brought. It could be extremely frivolous. It just often won't make it past the first court. So you can bring them as frivolous suits. They just won't go anywhere. Um, in both the U.S. and the U in Australia, the party who commences a general civil case is called the plaintiff, and the person against whom the action is brought is called the defendant. So it starts off in the U.S. with the plaintiff filing a complaint with the court. They tell the court what they're filing for, the facts of the case, etc. Next, they serve a summons to the defendant. This is where the defendant must answer with either an admit, deny, or I don't know, I don't have enough facts. And, or they can submit a counterclaim. In Australia, it starts off with the plaintiff writing what's called a writ of summons, which commences the action. After that, the defendant also files a memorandum of appearance indicating that they are intending to defend the action. Otherwise, they can also submit a counterclaim, like in the US. The difference is, after this, is when the plaintiff files a statement stating the facts on which their claim is based. Whereas in the U.S., this starts at the very beginning when the plaintiff files their complaint. Next, in both the U.S. and Australia, discovery happens. This is when each party provides a list of the documents, evidence, who they intend to bring as witnesses, etc., and share it with the other party and the court. Something unique in Australia is that after discovery, either party may apply to the court for orders to identify the issues in dispute more clearly. This is called a request for particulars, and it's something that the court does for the defendant or plaintiff to help them out. This is not an option in the U.S. In the U.S., it's sort of you're on your own. So you aren't given an attorney, and you kind of have to figure out how to walk the waters on your own. Next, in the U.S. and Australia, what happens is mediation and or ADR. In the U.S., this is voluntary, or it can be court-ordered on a case-by-case -case basis. And we'll hear more from Heidi about this in just a minute. In Australia, though, the parties are required to attend a settlement conference, which is known as a pretrial conference, where the court registrar will facilitate a discussion between the parties to see if they can agree to settle without going to trial. In some cases, a more formal mediation conference is listed, um, and they may have to go to that. But in the U.S., again, it can be voluntary. Otherwise, it's ordered on a case-by-case -case basis. But in Australia, it is always required by the parties. Let's hear from Heidi now on what exactly mediation and ADR are. Thanks, Savannah. So we know here in the United States, we have three different types of uh, ADR. 
Number one being mediation, and number two and 2B or three are arbitration either voluntarily or compulsory. And that's very similar in Australia as well. Um, in Australia, the mediation is the exact same thing as here in the United States. It's a third party neutral, um, they're going to preserve the relationship, and it pretty much prevents damage to any reputations. Um, this is where the parties kind of, you know, get a little bit of the best of both worlds, and the mediator hears both sides, um, and they can kind of facilitate an agreement that works with both parties. Mediation is required in Australia because, like Savannah said, they are required to do some form of ADR before they go to a trial. In both the United States and Australia, arbitration can either be voluntary or court-ordered. We know this as to be voluntary or compulsory here in the United States. If it's voluntary, both parties agree to go to arbitration and the arbitrator will decide the settlement. And if it's not voluntary, the compulsory form of arbitration is when the court forces you to go. Usually arbitration is given by the court instead of it being voluntary. Thanks Savannah for allowing me to talk about ADR in both the United States and Australia. Now I'm gonna turn it back over to you to continue talking about the civil process. So after the parties go to ADR, um, either voluntary in the US or because they're required to in Australia, the next action is that if it is not settled at that pretrial conference, if it is not settled through ADR, the action is listed for trial. In both the United States and in Australia, after the trial is held, the judge will usually take around three months to review all the evidence and publish a written judgment, or the jury will provide their judgment. So once that defendant is found liable, they'll have to pay out those damages to the plaintiff. Alrighty, so now that we've heard a little bit about the civil procedure and ADR and mediation, I'm going to turn it over to Lauren to talk a little bit about family law and what that entails. Thanks, Savannah. I am going to start by saying that there are separate courts in Australia that deal specifically with family law. They reside in every territory in Australia except for the Northern Territory, which is the only exception and family cases are decided within the local court system. So the Family Court of Australia's mission is to apply and uphold the rule of law for litigants in the Family Court of Australia through the resolution of family law matters according to law, particularly more complex family matters and through effective management of the administrative affairs of the court, which sounds extremely legal itself. The Family Court of Australia had three targets they wished to reach in the year of 2018 for the timely completion of their cases. The first target was, the cl was a clearance rate of 100%. The second target was 75% of judgments to be delivered within three months. And finally, the third target would be 75% of cases pending a conclusion be less than 12 months old. The courts reach all goals except for the pending conclusion being less than 12 months old. So family law cases are usually difficult and emotional and the Family Court of Australia is mindful of the decisions that they make knowing they will affect many lives for potentially many years. In the past five years, the caseloads in which family violence, child abuse, or risk of family violence has risen as well as the workload of the courts in dealing with these cases. This reflects uh, the growing awareness of family violence within the communities. 
There were significant changes made to the Family Law Act of 1975 in 2012, which introduced a wide variety of different family violence and abuse priorities. Um, some were the protection from harm to be considered over meaningful relationships, which are usually at odds with each other. Another one was to broaden obligations on advisors, the courts, and parties in which concerns about child abuse and family violence are relevant, and repeal provisions that may discourage disclosure of family violence and safety concerns. These amendment changes, changes are a contributing factor as to why there was an increasing rate of family violence and abuse cases in 2018. Prompt action is to be taken if a person files a notice of child abuse, family violence, or risk of family violence form. The court will then review and decide if the allegation stands and the application is either granted or refused. Evidence must be provided about these allegations and to protect the child or another party, the court will consider the next proceedings or orders. In the cases that are serious abuse, there is a program that is called the Magellan Program, which was developed to deal with the most vulnerable of children and is considered to be a fast track program. There are strict timeframes which are implemented by a judge who leads and manages the proceedings from the beginning to the end. There's also an early distribution of resources, such as the appointment of a court-ordered independent children's lawyer, which is funded fully by legal aid. There's also a requesting of information early in the trial process, and the cooperation from state welfare authorities and other organizations is very helpful because they have had contact with the family the entire time. And there is also a close liaison to help on case management between external information providers and a small team of judges, registrators, and family consultants. Each Magellan team that starts a case will finish the same case, and the aim is to finish each one within six months. In the United States, there is a similar program to the Magellan program, which is the CHIPS program, which is Children in Need of Protection and Services. Uh, there is a process that they go by. The first step is to petition under statute by the reasonable person or institute, which gives a statement of facts uh, bringing to attention to child protective services. The second step is a notice and summons for the parents so that they're aware of the current case. The third step is a hearing. Um, and if there is immediate danger, no hearing is issued and the child is taken immediately and the hearing is scheduled for 72 hours later. Whoever files the case is always anonymous unless it is falsified under malicious intent. Factors that would start a CHIPS case could be considered physical abuse, neglect of the child, an unsafe environment, abandonment, emotional abuse, medical neglect, etc., etc. The fifth step of the process is a visitation plan, which is always supervised and is required under statute. The sixth step is permanency, which is the finding of a new guardian, and that is only if the visitation doesn't go well. And the seventh and final step is termination, meaning the parental rights would be completely cut off from the child.
So for the child's welfare and the government's interest, severing the bond is not in the welfare of the child. And CHIPS cases are similar to criminal cases, and that's why they should have a lawyer provided. But in the case of the United States, lawyers are not provided in civil cases such as family law. I'm going to now turn it over to Heidi, and she's going to give you a brief intro on employment law. Thanks, Lauren. So employment law in the United States and Australia are similar, but there is some differences as well. Here in the United States, there are organizations and laws formed around minimum wage, overtime, labor laws, family and medical leave, and basic human rights. In Australia, there is something called the Fair Work Amendment, which protects vulnerable workers, and there is something called the Employment and Labor Law, which is updated every year. In Australia, the employment representation at a broad level does not exist like it does here in the United States. In both the United States and Australia, employees are protected from discrimination. Anti-discrimination laws in Australia are both at the federal, state, and legislative level, just like they are here in the United States. In the United States and Australia both, there are certain things that are covered in those laws, like sexual orientation and marital status. Those are not seen at the federal level in the United States, but they are seen in state level, like Minnesota and other states. In Australia, there's something called the FW Act, and that does protect people based on their sexual preference as well as marital status. So it's interesting that the federal protection in Australia is a lot more broad than what it is in the United States federal laws. So there are two different types of ways that discrimination can be found unlawful in both the United States and Australia. In Australia, it's called direct, which means the complaint is treated less favorably by the person who filed than a different person in the same similar situation or circumstance would have been. In the US, this is what we consider disparate treatment. In Australia, indirect would be an unreasonable requirement or condition that would be imposed upon the complaint, which operates as unfair barrier for a complaint with a protective barrier. In the United States, we call this disparate impact, which would be the exclusion of a certain ethnic group. So what I found really interesting was that in Australia, it is required for an employer to give written notice of the last date of employment, um, and the minimum period of notice are determined by the length of service, and longer written notice requirements may be required by contracts. But in the United States, it is not required for an employer to give any notice for termination. They usually do because it's a little bit more appropriate and it just makes more sense, but the federal law and state law do not require written termination notice. If an employee is terminated in Australia, they can be protected if the termination was harsh, unjust, unreasonable, discriminatory, or if it was a consequence of exercising a workplace right. In the United States, an employer can fire an employee for no reason, like I said, but what is protected in that is if it's unlawful, such as discrimination, or if there is a contract or a fixed duration period present that both parties have signed on. In Australia, some of the circumstances that employers are able to dismiss employees would be for unsatisfactory performance, misconduct, if they give the appropriate notice, 
or if the job is no longer crucial to the business, if the position no longer needs to be there for the business to be successful. In both the United States and Australia, if you as an employee feel that you were dismissed for an unlawful reason, you can file a claim with the court and try to reverse that. In Australia, common remedies for um, discriminatory claims for dismissal would be compensation, retractions, um, a variation of contract, or something as lame and stupid as an apology like oh yeah sorry we fired you from your full-time job here's here's just our sorry note but good luck (laughs) that is stupid but usually the remedies will vary depending on the claim and it really depends on the circumstances of each individual case the two major organizations that make up these laws in Australia are the Fair Work Commission, which is going to be where your safety net of minimum wage and work conditions would be, and that's the same as the FLSA in the United States. The second is the Fair Works Act, and that is going to govern employment of majority of Australian employees, and that is in addition to federal and state um, laws as well. Alright, time to lighten the mood. Sorry for boring you guys with our legal talk. Now we're going to turn it back over to Savannah, who's going to discuss something a little bit more exciting. Frivolous cases. Savannah, take it away. Thanks, Heidi. So, America is known for being a litigious society, or what some call a myth. Australia, on the other hand, does not have as many big frivolous suits as America tends to have. But there are a few that I found quite interesting. We're going to start by talking about Melbourne lawyer Peter Lustig and his client Simone. They were catching a flight from Sydney to Melbourne in 2006. They had a pair of economy tickets, but they wanted to put a suit locker in the business class. Nobody knows why. The cabin crew refused to give them access, at which point Lustig became angry and threatening. He asked to leave the plane, but refused to do so and tried to enter the cockpit to talk to the pilot. He eventually got off the plane and was later charged with interfering with a crew member. A jury found him guilty, but the conviction was overturned on appeal. Both Lustig and his client were placed on the airline's banned list as a result of the incident. Mr. Lustig later made a compensation claim from the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal, VCAT, seeking not only 60 million frequent flyer points, he wanted punitive damages to the airline because of its conduct for taking him off the plane, and $4.50 for the bus ticket that he paid for after being evicted from the plane. After a hysterical nine years of litigation, the case was finally stayed or put off by the federal court, who found that they did not have jurisdiction to hear it. The The court also prohibited him from taking the case any further in any other district or court. One other litigious case that happened in Australia is called Robertson's Missed Ferry. Robertson versus the Balamian New Ferry Company was not only a famous tort case, but an example of a self-represented lawyer with serious arrogance. The case concerned a solicitor, which was Mr. Robertson, who paid the handsome sum of one penny to enter the ferry terminal. A sign outside the ferry made it clear that the fee applied to anyone entering and leaving the wharf, whether they used the ferry or not. Mr. Robertson ended up missing his ferry, and when he went to leave, he refused to pay the one penny exit fee on the basis that he hadn't used a ferry. The attendant refused to let him leave without paying the penny, but after which the lawyer brought an action for false imprisonment, claiming that the attendant refused to let him go and he was being imprisoned. 
The case made it all the way to the Privy Council, which is the highest court, and found that against Mr. Robertson primarily due to commercial considerations of the company. The decision was debated and criticized to this day for ignoring well-established limitations on the circumstances in which a person's imprisonment could be justified, whatever that means. But in conclusion, there's a little consolation for Mr. Robertson, whose refusal to pay one penny cost him a great deal of time and money, having been ordered to pay the other side's legal costs as well as his own. I guess he didn't win that one. So those are some examples of some crazy civil lawsuits in Australia. And I'm sure we've all heard of the McDonald's case and the Pepsi Flyer case, but we're going to talk about one that's a little bit more scandalous. scandalous. So... New York attorney filed to have $111,000 reduced from his taxes because of money he spent on therapeutic sex with prostitutes between 2005 and 2006. The man claimed this was part of medical expenses and therefore should not have been taxed. However, the court found that because that therapeutic sex was not prescribed or ordered by a doctor that it could not have been under medical expenses and therefore he did have to pay those taxes in addition to the legal fees of the other party. He was a lawyer, aka he should have known better in the first place, so he did not have to have anybody represent him, but there were still court fees. Now we're going to go into a little bit of a roundtable discussion in terms of access to justice in relation to the concepts we've talked about today. So, Lauren, what did you think about the differences between Australia and the United States in terms of family court and CHIPS cases? Well, that's an interesting question, Savannah. Actually, I found that Australia really had a head up on uh, the United States in terms that their severe child abuse cases, the Magdalene cases versus the CHIPS cases in the United States, was that the Magdalene cases actually give you a court-appointed children's lawyer, which is free of charge. So that is really helpful for the one-shotter, and it's helpful for the access to justice as well. So it kind of gives them a leg up. Lauren, it's really interesting that you bring that up, um, because as Savannah talked about in our last episode, there was certain parts of the criminal justice system that would give you the court-appointed um, attorney, but we didn't understand what the just net need for that was, but that must be something that falls into that category. Yes, I agree. I think it is. And going off of that as well, it's really interesting that in Australia, alternative dispute resolutions um, actually can be used by juveniles in criminal cases, which I thought was super interesting because here in the United States, we talk about ADR in civil cases, because usually the outcomes between those are two parties, and they can dispute a regular resolution, whereas criminal cases focus on more the state or the country or somebody of major authority versus one person. This can be especially helpful for juveniles that are new to the criminal justice system and considered a one-shotter, that they don't have any idea of what the process is going to be or what to expect. So having that ADR available to them is pretty huge to prevent them from even having to really enter the whole criminal process trial, which really plays a huge role in the access to justice for those juveniles. So Savannah, you touched on the ability to request for particulars in Australia in civil cases. Can you touch on that in terms of access to justice? 
Yeah, so just to recap, in a civil case in Australia, either party can make a request for particulars, which essentially is asking the court to explain or identify the issues in the dispute more clearly. So this is essentially free legal advice, if you will, for the party in terms of the civil case, which is not awarded to us in the U.S. In the U.S., it seems to be a bit more, you're on your own. You know, If you have an attorney, then use them for that help. This goes to show that there's a little bit more access to justice in Australia than there is in the U.S. in terms of civil cases. And when there's a repeat player versus a one-shotter in a civil case, that one-shotter really has the court to go to for advice and for them to explain the dispute or the issue at hand, where in the U.S., that's really not the case. So Heidi, um, I know you did a little bit more research on access to justice in Australia. Uh, What do you have to say about that? Yeah, so the access to justice in Australia is very broad. It actually goes beyond just courts and lawyers. Um, It really starts with everyday justice, which makes it available for citizens to access information regarding cases. This is also the type of everyday justice where avoiding conflicts and managing disputes start. Um, So that's considered the very base of the triangle, if you will. Um, The middle part of the triangle would be more of like an informal justice, and this would be resolving disputes with a third party. So this is where your alternative dispute resolutions play in before you're going to go to a trial. Um, And then at the very top of the scale is the formal justice, and that's going to be with the courts, with the attorneys, with the lawyers. This is a very small portion of what actually happens in Australia just because of that very broad range that is available to them, starting with just information being available for search on the internet. And just to clarify, when I mentioned being able to research cases on the internet, what I meant by that was being able to find information on your type of case if it gets to that point. But one thing that Australia is prominent on is trying to avoid conflicts and managing disputes between individuals before making it any part of formal or informal justice with other parties involved. So something that ties into that is that policymakers are actually encouraged to continue to create initiatives and reforms that aim to improve access. There's actually websites that are intended to be a starting point that have um, a lot of information on there, which is what I was just talking about a little bit earlier. And these policymakers are, you know, entitled to create clearer laws as a quick reference guide for developing these cases to make people more aware of what is at hand so they're not really walking in blindly. So this really ties into the one-shotter. If somebody has no idea and they do get sucked into a litigation or a civil case, they have those resources available. If they don't have the ability to get counsel, they at least have a little bit more background on what is going on and hopefully that will influence them and give them a more positive result than if they were just walking into it very blindly with no type of assistance. So Heidi, uh, when I first started, I thought that the United States had a really good access to justice program, but it's kind of sounding like Australia has a a way better uh, access to justice program. Would you agree? I would agree with that, and I would say that maybe not necessarily better, but just a lot more informative and a lot more helpful, um, a lot more broad, not Mm -hmm. so narrow just focusing on people that get sucked into the justice system, but people that are trying to prevent it or trying to dispute things on their own. Okay, cool. 
So in Australia, there is an organization called the National Broadband Network Regional Legal Assistance Program, and that is essentially improving access to regional, rural, and remote areas. So making sure that people that aren't in major cities still have that access. There's actually grants that are given to these legal assist assistance providers so that they are able to continue their work. Um, and they are conducting trials that are national broadband network based that seek to strengthen and increase legal assistance for delivering to these areas. And the collaboration between legal assistance and other service providers is also seen within this organization. So that's really nice that they go out and about instead of just staying in their jurisdiction or their certain area to make sure that everybody has those rights and that access if need be. This has been episode three of The Legal Report. My name is Heidi. My name is Lauren. And Savannah. Thank you for tuning in, and hopefully we'll see you on another round of The Legal Report in the years to come. Don't go too far. Don't change the dial. You're tuned in to The Legal Report. Legal Report! Thank you. Have a great day.